From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, I'm Ezra Graham. British environmentalist and author Jonathan Porat talks to us about his new book, Hope in Hell, How We Can Confront the Climate Crisis and Save the Earth. Also, Daniel Carr, an owner of Carr's Steakhouse in Mayfield, Kentucky. The restaurant was destroyed by deadly tornadoes that swept through Kentucky and the surrounding states. That's all this week, coming up on News Nerds for Wednesday, December 22, 2021. Joining us now is Jonathan Porat. He's a British environmentalist and writer whose latest book is titled Hope in Hell, How We Can Confront the Climate Crisis and Save the Earth. Thanks for being with us. Hi, nice to meet you. So you're a member of the Green Party and you became involved in the 1970s. Uh, So what did the party look like back then? Yes, I joined the Green Party in the UK in 1974. And it was a very small party indeed, it has to be said. It was one of the first Green Parties in the world. I think the first one ever was in New Zealand, but the Green Party in the UK was uh, pretty soon after that. But it had a bit of a struggle, frankly, establishing itself because, of course, in those days, early 1970s, there wasn't a huge amount of attention being paid to environmental issues. And it meant that we had to struggle for every single bit of press attention that we could get and try to prove that there was something that needed to be brought into the political domain. Uh, How did the Green Party gain traction after uh, more people became aware of the climate crisis, both uh, in England and then here in the US? In a long haul, Ezra, let's be honest. Um, People first started showing their concern from a scientific and economic point of view about climate change back in the late 1980s, of course, some people before that even. But in terms of general political attention, I think it's fair to say that there was still very little going on at that time. Um, 1992 saw the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, And at that time, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was signed into being, which was probably the start of the really big um, global politics about climate change. The Green Party itself was always out there saying this is going to become an absolutely massive challenge to our conventional ways of creating wealth, because we won't be able to go on simply having the same kind of consumption-driven economic growth that we've had since the 1960s in the last century. So for the Green Parties, both in the US and in the UK, because of course there has been a, uh, a small Green Party in the US as well, there has always been a need to link climate with economics, not to keep these two things in separate boxes, because obviously climate change is a symptom of a much deeper problem which is that we somehow still think it's okay to go on mining the earth, extracting whatever we need, pillaging and polluting at every turn as the apparently acceptable price to pay for progress. Well, we know now that price is already very, very high indeed and could get so high that it will overwhelm the economy itself. So let's get to the book now. Um, You write in the book, uh, in the introduction, I think, In December 2020, I feel more inspired by what is happening in the USA than I have ever done before. 
So why didn't you feel hopeful for the environment or as hopeful before this time in 2020 and 2021? It's always been a bit of a balancing act, frankly. Uh, The balance between hope and despair. Sometimes it's easier to think that we're really going to get these things sorted in a timely and cost-effective way. At other times, it's really difficult. But of course, in 2020, we've just seen President Biden elected uh, beating Trump in the presidential election, Um, whatever Trump may still be arguing today in that completely surreal and mendacious way of his. That election victory was really important. The climate strategy that he and Vice President Kamala Harris brought forward in the election was really strong. It demonstrated that he was prepared to do a great deal more than President um, Barack Obama had done when he was president. And, And frankly, he didn't do anything like enough. A huge disappointment now looking back on his eight years in the White House. So I felt more hopeful for US leadership. And I think it's fair to say whatever your position might be on politics in the US, without US leadership, the big international negotiations are never going to succeed. So I felt more hopeful in 2020 because I knew we were going to get some proper leadership from the US again. And without that, I couldn't actually see anything shifting. If we'd had another four years of Donald Trump in the White House, um, the whole thing would have just slipped away. What are the biggest solutions? And you mentioned them in in the book, um, if anybody wants to check that out. I'll have a link in the show notes. What are the biggest solutions to climate change that you see as most sustainable and the most likely to get us back to carbon zero? I think the first thing is the one that we we do kind of understand now. We just have to stop burning fossil fuels. Primarily, it's those fossil fuels that are causing the buildup of these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So these are the two big things. Stop cutting down the world's remaining forests because they are a hugely important store of carbon. So we should, at all costs now, protect the world's forests. And secondly, stop burning fossil fuels because every time we burn another ton of coal or another barrel of oil, those greenhouse gas emissions continue to accumulate in the atmosphere. And the solution to that, the solution to deforestation is, is very simple. Just make sure that no country can go on cutting down its forests. We have to be able to protect them. And we know how to do that now. So, for instance, if Brazil continues to cut down its forests, then no country should be sourcing any of its commodities from Brazil that have caused that deforestation. Getting rid of the burning of fossil fuels is a little bit more complicated, let's be honest, because it's we've spent well, more than 100 years, if you think about it, dependent on those fossil fuels now, it's going to take longer to wean ourselves off them. But the great thing now is we know that we would have a very effective energy system even without fossil fuels. And that system would be based on renewables, on efficiency at every point in the economy, on storage technologies, batteries and other storage technologies, and a different kind of way of configuring the grid. We know this works, and we know that we could bring it in at speed across the entire world. So you talk about geoengineering in the book. Uh, Explain briefly what it is and how we can geoengineer. 
yes, this is a big idea that is going to loom larger and larger. And um, for all of your younger listeners, Ezra, it's going to become one of those ideas that I'm sorry to say, you'll have to focus on a lot because there's what I call in the book, good geoengineering. And there's a hell of a lot of really stupid, bad geoengineering, to say the least. And by bad geoengineering, for instance, I mean all of those crazy people who think that what we should be doing is covering the stratosphere with particles, with aerosols of sulfur and so on, to reflect more of the incoming solar radiation back into, into space. Now, really and truly, that kind of thing is just mind-bendingly dangerous. You can't fix the planet by bringing in another massive dangerous fix of that kind. But there are other kinds of geoengineering, which if you think about it, are really important. So for instance, we know we have to sequester, store more carbon in our terrestrial and ocean systems. We've put so much carbon up into the atmosphere. Now we're going to have to get some of it back out of the atmosphere and store it back here on Earth. We should never have taken it out of the ground in the first place in terms of those fossil fuels. But now we have to get it back. And that means we have to rebuild the world's soils, the world's forests, the world's wetlands, peat bogs, and so on, all of which store huge amounts of carbon already and do the same for our ocean environments. For instance, if you look at the potential for mangrove swamps to store carbon, seagrasses, uh, kelp and seaweed, these are all ways of geoengineering. I call it bio-geoengineering. So geoengineering these great big life systems, which will be so much more cost-effective and less dangerous than the kind of techno-geoengineering that I'm sorry to say a lot of slightly crazy scientists are advocates for. So we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic right now, and there's just been a new variant discovered. Do you think that the threat of something like a pandemic has made people more aware of threats that can harm their way of life? I seriously hope that that is one of the lessons we take from this extremely painful public health crisis, this pandemic, because in a way, what climate change threatens us with, and not just in the distant future, but threatens us with in the relatively near future, could be much, much worse than COVID, much worse than the pandemic. And what the pandemic has taught us is that to deal with these threats, we have to work effectively together. We have to have that level of international cooperation. Without that, it's almost impossible to see those solutions moved forward far enough and fast enough. So I hope we take that lesson from the pandemic. It's a tough story. We're still in the pandemic. It's not going away anytime soon. And frankly, we have not made a very good job in terms of what is called vaccinating the world. There are an awful lot of countries all around the world where we still have not seen adequate levels of vaccination to make those countries safe and in the process to keep the whole of the rest of the world safe. In the end, we, this has to be global. We have to get every single person on this planet vaccinated against COVID and protect ourselves in that way. And what we learn from that, those lessons will carry over into dealing with climate change. You talk in the book about runaway climate change, which is um, kind of a, a, it's a very 
late stage of climate change when there's not much that we can do about it? What would happen to other animals um, if we fail to stop runaway climate change? It's a grim prospect, Ezra, and I'm sorry to have to spend time laying this out with your with your audience because it's it's very difficult to to be in any way optimistic about this stuff. Um, irreversible climate change is at the end of a huge spectrum. Okay, so most scientists today are talking about the kind of climate change we're already seeing with with very significant shocks climate-induced shocks to our system, whether it's heat domes or floods or droughts or wildfires or hurricanes, typhoons, whatever it might be. That's the situation today. And that's really already very serious indeed. And then the scientists go on to talk about those shocks getting more and more serious, if you like. And then they postulate that if we don't do something about it, then we'll get this phenomenon called runaway climate change, where suddenly all these natural systems begin changing faster and faster and faster. And as they change, they affect other systems. And that means that the whole thing begins to gather a huge momentum, a pace of change. <laughs> and then at the end of this gloomy spectrum, sorry about this, is what they call irreversible runaway climate change, where even if we want to do something about it, we can't. Now look, the simple story is here that all of those things are already a serious risk, not just to humankind, but to the whole of life on Earth. So the sooner we can get our heads around what it means to stop it now, it's still it's bad now, but it's going to get a lot worse, then prospects for us and for life on Earth look a great deal better. That I liked how that there was there was a siren in the background while you were saying that. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Funnily enough, I did hear that at the same time. So as average citizens, we don't hold as much power as politicians, which we'll get to in just a moment. But as average citizens, what can we do to help curb climate change? It's an important question. And I think we are getting more and more aware of the personal responsibility side of it, if you like, doing what we can in our own lives. And that might mean thinking about the way in which we travel, use energy, we buy food, we can to reduce levels of meat consumption because obviously the whole meat intensive diets of the Western countries are a very big contributor to climate change. And we put all of these things into our daily practice, basically. That's essentially what it's all about. But you can't stop there. And as Greta Thunberg has quite rightly pointed out, you then have to think about your role as a citizen, not just as a consumer, but as a citizen. And that means putting more pressure on the politicians, because you're right. It's those politicians, ultimately, who can take the decisions that we need now to get on top of this crisis. It's only that those politicians. We can do so much in our own lives, and companies can do a lot more than, the, the, than they're currently doing to reduce their negative impact. But ultimately, it's politicians that have to change the nature of the economy that we live in today. What would you like politicians to do in the next uh, five or 10 years? <laughs> That's a rather big question, Ezra. I mean, the reality is we, we all live in market-based economies, for-profit, market-based economies. And that's going to be the nature of the 
global economy for a long time to come. There are very few countries who don't subscribe to that overall economic system, as it were. So in a market economy, one of the most important rules is this, that the price that we pay for things in that market economy, the price needs to reflect the cost of bringing those products to the market in the first place. So economists describe this as cost externalization, dumping some of the costs associated with production onto future generations, other people, onto the rest of life on earth, etc., etc. And the classic case of this, of course, are these emissions of these greenhouse gases. Nobody pays anything to emit those greenhouse gases today. There isn't a carbon price, as people call it. So everybody involved in using those fossil fuels is getting a subsidy because they're not paying for the damage that the emissions from those fuels is causing. That's the trouble. So the one biggest thing that politicians have to do now is to bring the cost of carbon into these market-based calculations. We have to understand now that if we're going to get our economy decarbonized, free of carbon as fast as possible, then we have to pay a price for that carbon. And that is a well-established idea. It's been debated quite a lot in the USA, in the European Union in particular, and people understand that this is an important part of doing it. But the politics of getting it through, that's a different story. So I spoke to uh, Tuvalu's foreign minister after the COP26 conference. Um, he uh, recorded a video of him standing in the Pacific Ocean because his islands will be, if runaway climate change happens, they will be underwater in the next 50 years. So uh, do you think that the COP26 conference that took place in Glasgow was enough to at least, uh, did it meet your expectations as of what to expect? Yeah, I saw that, uh, that press conference as well, Ezra, and I thought, yep, that makes the point. That's what it means for a lot of these small island countries, Pacific countries in particular, but not just in the Pacific, you know, all around the world. And it was a very powerful statement that he made. Um, did this big climate conference just a few weeks ago, did it do everything that it needed to do? No, it didn't. It fell short in many, many areas. And as you probably know, the even if all the countries did everything they've promised to do, we would still see the temperature rise to very, very dangerous levels. Tuvalu would still, unfortunately, be slipping under the waves, even if the politicians delivered on everything that they promised from Glasgow. So it didn't do everything. But it would, I think it's wrong to characterize Glasgow as a complete failure. It wasn't a complete failure. A lot of things were delivered in Glasgow. And there was a a huge number of additional agreements signed up to in Glasgow on forests, on methane, on new technologies, on a host of different things that are really critical to this story of decarbonizing our economy. So it wasn't a failure, but it's fascinating, you know, these politicians, they are only just now beginning to understand the severity of what this climate threat looks like. It's unbelievable. We've been talking about it for 30 years. And only now are the little political brains kind of clocking exactly how serious and urgent this is. Remarkable 
that it's taken them this long. But in Glasgow, there was a definite stepping up in terms of the awareness required to find the solutions to this crisis. Here in the U.S., we've seen severe storms and tornadoes. Um, and either on this episode or next, I'm uh, talking to a small business owner who had their business wiped out by one of the tornadoes that went through Kentucky two weeks ago. Uh, some credit these storms to climate change. It really depends on where you go for your news. Um, <laughs> yes. Do you credit these storms to climate change? It's a really difficult one. Um, of, all the, of all the kind of big climate shocks that we see, tornadoes are one of the hardest to attribute to climate change. They are one of the hardest. In comparison, for instance, to the kind of floods that we've seen in the Midwest, to the extraordinary temperatures that we've seen, particularly in British Columbia earlier in the summer, the heat dome that was formed, to the wildfires in California. If you talk about all of those kind of climate-induced disasters, scientists are much more confident in saying, yep, climate change is a major contributor to these unprecedented levels of disruption in the climate. When it comes to tornadoes, I'm not a scientist, so I'm just, this is a BBC view, by the way, it's probably somewhere between CNN and um, Fox News. The BBC gave a very interesting commentary saying it's, it's a harder one to demonstrate. So it's not surprising that there are some scientists who have attributed the intensity of those tornadoes and the length of uh, distance that it covered to climate change and others who are reluctant to do that because they just don't think the evidence is there for this being a climate-induced disaster. Jonathan Porat, thank you so much for talking to me today. Not at all. It's been a real delight and good luck in all your work. Jonathan Port is a British environmentalist and his latest book is titled Hope and Hell, How We Can Confront the Climate Crisis and Save the Earth. Daniel Carr is one of the owners of Carr's Steakhouse in Mayfield, Kentucky. The steakhouse was reduced to rubble after multiple tornadoes tore through at least six states, uh, including Kentucky, two Fridays ago. Daniel joins us now to uh, tell us more about the restaurant. Thank you so much for being with us, and I'm so sorry for the loss of the restaurant. Absolutely. Thank you. So how are you feeling right now, um, and where are you in the state? Sure. Uh, Mayfield is in the far western part of the state. Um, like this pretty rural area. It's just, like I said, we're a small town, about 10,000 people. Uh, the, the community is probably more like 30,000 altogether. Uh, we're kind of right in the middle of nowhere. I mean, we're pretty close to several big cities, uh, about two hours from Nashville, three hours from Memphis, St. Louis, Louisville. When the tornadoes came through the state, uh, where were you and how did you uh, get into a safe space? Sure. Um, I had worked all day, so I went home about 8.30, 8.45 that night. Uh, my wife already had the news and the weather on because she's really uh, aware and kind of mindful of bad weather. We've got five kids, four of them are pretty small. So we do have a basement, so we already had a plan in place. But once we realized it was going to be really bad and that a tornado was coming to Mayfield, I called back to the restaurant and told my brother who was closing to just get everybody out, whether they were eating or cooking or whatever they're doing, just to 
get everybody out as quick as possible. And they got out about within 10 minutes of the restaurant being flat. So I'm very thankful for that. My son was working, my brother, like I said, his wife, uh, two of my brother-in-laws, my father-in-law. It's a family business. We've got a lot of family working there. So I'm, I'm so glad that they made it out. We're not having several funerals right now. Uh, but like I said, at home, we were safe. We had a basement. We got into uh, my son and his friend and my father-in-law made it into the house just a minute or two before the tornado came through. And we just kind of hunkered down in the basement and kind of held each other tight. And luckily we were, we weren't, our house wasn't harmed and we weren't harmed. So that was, that was amazing. President Biden uh, traveled to Mayfield and another uh, town in Kentucky that was badly hurt by the tornadoes. How do you react to that trip um, to Mayfield? It definitely brings attention to us. It brings, hopefully it brings some aid and awareness from the nation and the world really. But I know him, I know him seeing that firsthand overhead and in the streets, you know, that kind of made him a little more aware of how severe things are and the severity of the destruction and the loss of not just homes and buildings and businesses, but life. And we lost across the state of Kentucky, almost 80 people, you know, a large number of those in our community here in Mayfield and everywhere from infants to, you know, adults and elderly, like I said, the whole range. I mean, it's, it's very tragic and hopefully he was able to see just how devastated our community is and that we will get, you know, the aid that we do need to move forward and rebuild hopefully. Do you think that aid is um, enough right now, or does Kentucky and the surrounding states really need a lot more than what you've been given so far? I'm not exactly sure. This is the first time I've ever been through a tornado, especially anything close to this, you know, of any kind of disaster. So I'm not sure how that it's all supposed to work, you know, what kind of time frame there is on, you know, the financial end of things, you know, FEMA dispersing funds to people that need it even insurance companies dispersing funds to people that need it. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing a huge, tremendous amount of aid and support coming into our community from the government, from businesses, from charities, just from other people. They might you know, be from the next town over. They might be from Florida, Washington. I've, I've met people from all across the country in the last few days that are just here because they want to help us. So that's tremendous. I mean, the need is enormous. I don't know if the need is being met or not, but, the outpouring of support and aid is also enormous. So hopefully it is. I mean, hopefully, I know there's still people without power, without water, without heat. And I mean, it's getting cold here in Kentucky. Um, but I mean, people are doing everything they can. I mean, people here that live here are doing everything they can and people that are coming in to help are giving it everything they've got. So I, I appreciate every one of them. So you said that the uh, restaurant is a family restaurant and it, there's some history behind the restaurant uh, how did the how did cars start and uh, what was it like? Sure, um, like I said, our, my car the car family started uh, a restaurant in Mayfield in the 1950s. Like I said, that was the Cars Barn Barbecue, is what it's called now. Uh, then it was called the Cars Barn Cafe, which is a little 12 seat bar diner, not a bar, but it's got a big long bar top with 12 stools, and that was kind of the extent of the restaurant. They did you know barbecue just short order food. It was a real neat place. I grew up in it. You know, I, when I was in high school, I worked there. Except my grandparents started it and worked at it for years and years and then handed it over to my father who later handed it over to my cousin. And like she's put her whole life into it. So I, I really feel for her too. 
Um, and then at about a 2010 or so, we decided we wanted to do something different. So we purchased the property across from the steakhouse. that was just an old vacant building that was built in the late 1800s. Uh, it was a really neat old building. Originally, it sold. Uh, they had a like a wagon and buggy dealership in the building in the early 1900s, late 1800s, and it had been all kinds of things after that. But it was a really neat building, and we were able to, able to kind of put ourselves into it, put the community into it. Our walls really adorned with a lot of old pictures of Mayfield over the years. So we kind of made it a real you know neat place to come and kind of learn about the community and be a part of the community. Do you um, do you, do you think that you're gonna try to rebuild the restaurant, or um, will you, you like what are the next steps for the restaurant? Sure, we haven't really explored all the steps yet. Right now, we're just really concerned about our staff, our employees. You know, trying to look out for them. I mean, a lot of I had my manager lost his home. Several of my employees lost their homes, so we're trying to you know get them a place to live temporarily, and then try to help them on their feet beyond that. Help them, you know with whatever's they're being hit with right now to get back on their feet. And then beyond that, we're just in the community right now. We're in the streets helping people. Like I said, there's literally over a thousand people without homes right now. There's thousands without, you know, power and the heat, like I talked about. So we're trying to help as many people as we can. You know, once we can get through this as a community, we're going to look at hopefully reopening. You know, we might not be able to rebuild. Definitely not like it was. Like I said, it was a really neat 150 year old building. So it might not be the same steakhouse that people are familiar with. We're going to do something because the amount of encouragement I've gotten and my family's gotten has been tremendous. You know, people really um, are missing Carr Steakhouse and want us to come back. So, you know, we're going to have to really try our best to be back for the community. What does the rest of Mayfield look like right now? Uh, I don't know if you've seen the pictures or not, but I mean, like the downtown is very much uh, looks like, a movie of, you know, World War II movie where buildings are just blown out and bombed out. I mean, just bricks everywhere, you know, wood everywhere. Um, there's large sections of just the neighborhoods of residences that are just gone or badly, badly damaged. Um, you know, a good part of our town is still, you know, looks the same. You know, you can go across town and things look fairly normal except for all the different vehicles here right now from out of state and stuff. You know, the power not being on in certain places, but then you, you cross those blocks, you just, it's just unreal. It looks like something out of a movie, like I said. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for talking to me today. Absolutely. I'm glad I could do it. Daniel Carr is the owner of Carr Steakhouse in Mayfield, Kentucky, which was destroyed in the tornadoes that came through Kentucky two weeks ago. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. While you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Another way to listen is by listening every other week on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KJVM, Community Radio, for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KJVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream. So, in the interview with Jonathan, he talks about something he calls bio-geoengineering, which is 
basically taking some of the carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it back in the soil um, and in the earth, or just trying to deflect some of the uh, the consequences of that carbon. And I heard an interview with uh, Elizabeth Colbert or Colbert, excuse me, uh, who talked about this one kind of sequestering of carbon, well, not really sequestering, but deflection of the impacts of climate change, which would be putting diamond particles into the atmosphere so that we could deflect some of the intense heat from the sun, uh, because that would be intensified by the carbon uh, in the atmosphere. So he says that's dangerous, but I'll let you think about that. Uh, but we'll be back next week with a special end-of-the-year edition of News Nerds, and it will feature some before and after conversations with some of my guests never before heard content. I think that you will enjoy some of that. But in the meantime, listen to some of our past episodes. There's some great stuff there. And be sure to like and subscribe. That's a YouTube thing. Never mind. But bye-bye. See you next week. Uh...